Part One F of Auguste Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Auguste Comte and Positivism, by John Stuart Mill. Part One F. This is the leading feature in M. Comte's conception of a regenerated society. And however much this ideal differs from that which is implied more or less confusedly in the negative philosophy of the last three centuries, we hold the amount of truth in the two to be about the same. M. Comte has got hold of half the truth, and the so-called liberal or revolutionary school possesses the other half. Each sees what the other does not see and seeing it exclusively draws consequences from it which to the other appear mischievously absurd it is without doubt the necessary condition of mankind to receive most of their opinions on the authority of those who have specially studied the matters to which they relate the wisest can act on no other rule on subjects with which they are not themselves thoroughly conversant and the mass of mankind have always done the like on all the great subjects of thought and conduct acting with implicit confidence on opinions of which they did not know, and were often incapable of understanding, the grounds, but on which as long as their natural guides were unanimous they fully relied, growing uncertain and sceptical only when these became divided, and teachers who as far as they could judge were equally competent professed contradictory opinions. Any doctrines which come recommended by the nearly universal verdict of instructed minds will no doubt continue to be, as they have hitherto been, accepted without misgiving by the rest. The difference is, that with the wide diffusion of scientific education among the whole people, demanded by M. Comte, their faith, however implicit, would not be that of ignorance. It would not be the blind submission of dunces to men of knowledge, but the intelligent deference of those who know much to those who know still more. It is those who have some knowledge of astronomy, not those who have none at all, who best appreciate how prodigiously more Lagrange or Laplace knew than themselves. This is what can be said in favour of M. Comte. On the contrary side it is to be said that in order that this salutary ascendancy over opinion should be exercised by the most eminent thinkers, it is not necessary that they should be associated and organized. The ascendancy will come of itself when the unanimity is attained without which it is neither desirable nor possible. It is because astronomers agree in their teaching that astronomy is trusted, and not because there is an academy of sciences, or a royal society issuing decrees or passing resolutions. A constituted moral authority can only be required when the object is not merely to promulgate and diffuse principles of conduct, but to direct the detail of their application to declare and inculcate not duties but each person's duty, as was attempted by the spiritual authority of the Middle Ages. From this extreme application of his principle M. Comte does not shrink. A function of this sort no doubt may often be very usefully discharged by individual members of the speculative class, but if entrusted to any organized body would involve nothing less than a spiritual despotism. This, however, is what M. Comte really contemplated, though it would practically nullify that peremptory separation of the spiritual from the temporal power, which he justly deemed essential to a wholesome state of society. Those whom an irresistible public opinion invested with the right to dictate or control the acts of rulers, though without the means of backing their advice by force, 
would have all the real power of the temporal authorities, without their labours or their responsibilities. M. Comte would probably have answered that the temporal rulers, having the whole legal power in their hands, would certainly not pay to the spiritual authority more than a very limited obedience, which amounts to saying that the ideal form of society, which he sets up, is only fit to be an ideal, because it cannot possibly be realized. That education should be practically directed by the philosophic class, when there is a philosophic class who have made good their claim to the place and opinion hitherto filled by the clergy, would be natural and indispensable. But that all education should be in the hands of a centralized authority, whether composed of clergy or of philosophers, and be consequently all framed on the same model, and directed to the perpetuation of the same type, is a state of things which, instead of becoming more acceptable, will assuredly be more repugnant to mankind, with every step of their progress in the unfettered exercise of their highest faculties. We shall see, in the second part, the evils with which the conception of the new spiritual power is pregnant, coming out into full bloom in the more complete development which M. Comte gave to the idea in his later years. After this unsatisfactory attempt to trace the outline of social statics, M. Comte passes to a topic on which he is much more at home, the subject of his most eminent speculations, social dynamics, or the laws of the evolution of human society. Two questions meet us at the outset. Is there a natural evolution in human affairs? And is that evolution an improvement? M. Comte resolves them both in the affirmative, by the same answer, the natural progress of society consists in the growth of our human attributes, comparatively to our animal and our purely organic ones. The progress of our humanity towards an ascendancy over our animality, ever more nearly approached, though incapable of being completely realized. This is the character and tendency of human development, or of what is called civilization, and the obligation of seconding this movement of working in the direction of it, is the nearest approach which M. Comte makes in this treatise to a general principle or standard of morality. But as our more eminent and peculiarly human faculties are of various orders, moral, intellectual, and aesthetic, the question presents itself, is there any one of these whose development is the predominant agency in the evolution of our species? According to M. Comte, the main agent in the progress of mankind is their intellectual development. Not because the intellectual is the most powerful part of our nature, for limited to its inherent strength, it is one of the weakest, but because it is the guiding part, and acts not with its own strength alone, but with the united force of all parts of our nature which it can draw after it. In a social state the feelings and propensities cannot act with their full power, in a determinate direction, unless the speculative intellect places itself at their head. The passions are, in the individual man, a more energetic power than a mere intellectual conviction. But the passions tend to divide, not to unite, mankind. It is only by a common belief that passions are brought to work together, and become a collective force instead of forces neutralizing one another. Our intelligence is first awakened by the stimulus of our animal wants and of our stronger and coarser desires, and these for a long time almost exclusively determine the direction in which our intelligence shall work. But once roused to activity, 
it assumes more and more the management of the operations of which stronger impulses are the prompters, and constrains them to follow its lead, not by its own strength, but because in the play of antagonistic forces the path it points out is, in scientific phraseology, the direction of least resistance. Personal interests and feelings in the social state can only obtain the maximum of satisfaction by means of cooperation, and the necessary condition of cooperation is a common belief. All human society, consequently, is grounded on a system of fundamental opinions, which only the speculative faculty can provide, and which, when provided, directs our other impulses in their mode of seeking their gratification. And hence the history of opinions, and of the speculative faculty, has always been the leading element in the history of mankind. This doctrine has been combated by Mr. Herbert Spencer in the pamphlet already referred to, and we will quote in his own words the theory he propounds in opposition to it. Ideas do not govern and overthrow the world. The world is governed or overthrown by feelings, to which ideas serve only as guides. The social mechanism does not rest finally upon opinions, but almost wholly upon character. Not intellectual anarchy, but moral antagonism, is the cause of political crises. All social phenomena are produced by the totality of human emotions and beliefs, of which the emotions are mainly predetermined, while the beliefs are mainly postdetermined. Men's desires are chiefly inherited, but their beliefs are chiefly acquired, and depend on surrounding conditions, and the most important surrounding conditions depend on the social state which the prevalent desires have produced. The social state at any time existing is the resultant of all the ambitions, self-interests, fears, reverences, indignations, sympathies, etc., of ancestral citizens and existing citizens. The ideas current in this social state must, on the average, lie congruous with the feelings of citizens, and therefore, on the average, with the social state these feelings have produced. Ideas wholly foreign to this social state cannot be evolved, and if introduced from without cannot get accepted, or, if accepted, die out when the temporary phase of feeling which caused their acceptance ends. Hence, though advanced ideas, when once established, act upon society and aid its further advance, yet the establishment of such ideas depends on the fitness of society for receiving them. Practically, the popular character and the social state determine what ideas shall be current, instead of the current ideas determining the social state and the character. The modification of men's moral natures, caused by the continuous discipline of social life, which adapts them more and more to social relations, is therefore the chief proximate cause of social progress. Footnote Of the Classification of the Sciences pages 37 and 38. End footnote. A great part of these statements would have been acknowledged as true by M. Comte, and belong as much to his theory as to Mr. Spencer's. The reaction of all other mental and social elements upon the intellectual not only is fully recognized by him, but his philosophy of history makes great use of it, pointing out that the principal intellectual changes could not have taken place unless changes in other elements of society had preceded, but also showing that these were themselves consequences of prior intellectual changes. It will not be found, on a fair examination of what M. Comte has written, 
that he has overlooked any of the truth that there is in Mr. Spencer's theory. He would not indeed have said, what Mr. Spencer apparently wishes us to say, that the effects which can be historically traced, for example to religion, were not produced by the belief in God, but by reverence and fear of Him. He would have said that the reverence and fear presuppose the belief, that a God must be believed in before He can be feared or reverenced. The whole influence of the belief in a God upon society and civilization depends on the powerful human sentiments which are ready to attach themselves to the belief, and yet the sentiments are only a social force at all, through the definite direction given to them by that or some other intellectual conviction. Nor did the sentiments spontaneously throw up the belief in a God, since in themselves they were equally capable of gathering round some other object though it is true that men's passions and interests often dictate their opinions, or rather decide their choice among the two or three forms of opinion, which the existing condition of human intelligence renders possible, this disturbing cause is confined to morals, politics, and religion, and it is the intellectual movement in other regions than these which is at the root of all the great changes in human affairs. It was not human emotions and passions which discovered the motion of the earth or detected the evidence of its antiquity, which exploded scholasticism, and inaugurated the exploration of nature, which invented printing-paper, and the mariner's compass. Yet the Reformation, the English and French revolutions, and still greater moral and social changes yet to come, are direct consequences of these and similar discoveries. Even alchemy and astrology were not believed because people thirsted for gold and were anxious to pry into the future for these desires are as strong now as they were then, but because alchemy and astrology were conceptions natural to a particular stage in the growth of human knowledge, and consequently determined during that stage the particular means whereby the passions which always exist sought their gratification. To say that men's intellectual beliefs do not determine their conduct is like saying that the ship is moved by the steam and not by the steersman. The steam indeed is the motive power. The steersman, left to himself, could not advance the vessel a single inch. Yet it is the steersman's will and the steersman's knowledge which decide in what direction it shall move and whither it shall go. Examining next what is the natural order of intellectual progress among mankind, M. Comte observes that as their general mode of conceiving the universe must give its character to all their conceptions of detail, the determining fact in their intellectual history must be the natural succession of theories of the universe, which it has been seen consists of three stages, the theological, the metaphysical, and the positive. The passage of mankind through these stages, including the successive modifications of the theological conception by the rising influence of the other two, is, to M. Comte's mind, the most decisive fact in the evolution of humanity. Simultaneously, however, there has been going on throughout history a parallel movement in the purely temporal department of things, consisting of the gradual decline of the military mode of life, originally the chief occupation of all freemen, and its replacement by the industrial. M. Comte maintains that there is a necessary connection and interdependence between this historical sequence and the other and he easily shows that the progress of industry and that of positive science are correlative, man's power to modify the facts of nature evidently depending on the knowledge he has acquired of their laws. 
We do not think him equally successful in showing a natural connection between the theological mode of thought and the military system of society. But since they both belong to the same age of the world, since each is in itself natural and inevitable, and they are together modified and together undermined by the same cause, the progress of science and industry, M. Comte is justified in considering them as linked together, and the movement by which mankind emerge from them as a single evolution. These propositions having been laid down as the first principles of social dynamics, M. Comte proceeds to verify and apply them by a connected view of universal history. This survey nearly fills two large volumes, above a third of the work, in all of which there is scarcely a sentence that does not add an idea. We regard it as by far his greatest achievement, except his review of the science, and in some respects more striking even than that. We wish it were practicable, in the compass of an essay like the present, to give even a faint conception of the extraordinary merits of this historical analysis. It must be read to be appreciated. Whoever disbelieves that the philosophy of history can be made a science should suspend his judgment until he has read these volumes of M. Comte. We do not affirm that they would certainly change his opinion, but we would strongly advise him to give them a chance. We shall not attempt the vain task of abridgment. A few words are all we can give to the subject. M. Comte confines himself to the main stream of human progress, looking only at the races and nations that led the van, and regarding as the successors of a people not their actual descendants, but those who took up the thread of progress after them. His object is to characterize truly, though generally, the successive states of society through which the advanced guard of our species has passed, and the filiation of these states on one another, how each grew out of the preceding and was the parent of the following state. A more detailed explanation, taking into account minute differences in more special and local phenomena, M. Comte does not aim at, though he does not avoid it when it falls in his path. Here, as in all his other speculations, we meet occasional misjudgments, and his historical correctness in minor matters is now and then at fault. But we may well wonder that it is not oftener so, considering the vastness of the field and a passage in one of his prefaces in which he says of himself that he rapidly amassed the materials for his great enterprise. 634. This expression in his mouth does not imply what it would in that of the majority of men, regard being had to his rare capacity of prolonged and concentrated mental labor. And it is wonderful that he so seldom gives cause to wish that his collection of materials had been less rapid. But, as he himself remarks, in an inquiry of this sort, the vulgarest facts are the most important. A movement common to all mankind, to all of them at least who do move, must depend on causes affecting them all. And these, from the scale on which they operate, cannot require abstruse research to bring them to light. They are not only seen, but best seen in the most obvious, most universal, and most undisputed phenomena. Accordingly, M. Comte lays no claim to new views respecting the mere facts of history. He takes them as he finds them, builds almost exclusively on those concerning which there is no dispute, and only tries what positive results can be obtained by combining them. Among the vast mass of historical observations which he has grouped and coordinated, if we have found any errors they are in things which do not affect his main conclusions. 
the chain of causation by which he connects the spiritual and temporal life of each era with one another and with the entire series will be found we think in all essentials irrefragable when local or temporary disturbing causes have to be taken into the account as modifying the general movement criticism has more to say but this will only become important when the attempt is made to write the history or delineate the character of some given society on m comte's principles such doubtful statements or misappreciations of states of society as we have remarked are confined to cases which stand more or less apart from the principal line of development of the progressive societies for instance he makes greatly too much of what with many other continental thinkers he calls the theocratic state he regards this as a natural and at one time almost an universal stage of social progress though admitting that it either never existed or speedily ceased in the two ancient nations to which mankind are chiefly indebted for being permanently progressive we hold it doubtful if there ever existed what m comte means by a theocracy there was indeed no lack of societies in which the civil and penal law being supposed to have been divinely revealed the priests were its authorized interpreters but this is the case even in mussulman countries the extreme opposite of theocracy by a theocracy we understand to be meant and we understand m comte to mean a society founded on caste and in which the speculative necessarily identical with the priestly caste has the temporal government in its hands or under its control we believe that no such state of things ever existed in the societies commonly cited as theocratic there is no reason to think that in any of them the king or chief of the government was ever unless by occasional usurpation a member of the priestly caste footnote in the case of egypt we admit that there may be cited against us the authority of plato in whose politicus it is said that the king of egypt must be a member of the priestly caste or if by usurpation a member of any other caste acquired the sovereignty he must be initiated with the sacerdotal order but plato was writing of a state of things which already belonged to the past nor have we any assurance that his information on egyptian institutions was authentic and accurate had the king been necessarily or commonly a member of the priestly order it is most improbable that the careful herodotus of whose comprehensive work an entire book was devoted to a minute account of egypt and its institutions and who collected his information from egyptian priests in the country itself would have been ignorant of a part so important and tending so much to exalt the dignity of the priesthood who were much more likely to affirm it falsely to plato than to withhold the knowledge of it if true from herodotus not only is herodotus silent respecting any such law or custom but he thinks it needful to mention that in one particular instance the king by name sethos was a priest which he would scarcely have done if this had been other than an exceptional case it is likely enough that a king of egypt would learn the hieratic character and would not suffer any of the mysteries of law or religion which were in the keeping of the priests to be withheld from him and this was very probably all the foundation which existed for the assertion of the Iliadic stranger in plato's dialogue End footnote. it was not so in israel even in the time of the judges jephthah for example was a gileadite of the tribe of manasseh and a military captain as all governors in such an age and country needed to be priestly rulers only present themselves in two anomalous cases of which next to nothing is known 
the Mikados of Japan, and the Grand Lamas of Tibet, in neither of which instances was the general constitution of society one of caste, and in the latter of them the priestly sovereignty is as nominal as it has become in the former. India is the typical specimen of the institution of caste, the only case in which we are certain that it ever really existed, for its existence anywhere else is a matter of more or less probable inference in the remote past. But in India, where the importance of the sacerdotal order was greater than in any other recorded state of society, the king not only was not a priest, but, consistently with the religious law, could not be one. He belonged to a different caste. The Brahmins were invested with an exalted character of sanctity, and an enormous amount of civil privileges. The king was enjoined to have a council of Brahmin advisers, but practically he took their advice or disregarded it exactly as he pleased as is observed by the historian who first threw the light of reason on Hindu society. Footnote. Mill. History of British India. Book 2. Chapter 3. End footnote. The king, though in dignity to judge by the written code, he seemed vastly inferior to the Brahmins, had always the full power of a despotic monarch, the reason being that he had the command of the army, and the control of the public revenue. There is no case known to authentic history in which either of these belonged to the sacerdotal caste. Even in the cases most favorable to them, the priesthood had no voice in temporal affairs, except the consultative voice which M. Comte's theory allows to every spiritual power. His collection of materials must have been unusually rapid in this instance, for he regards almost all the societies of antiquity, except the Greek and Roman, as theocratic even Gaul under the Druids, and Persia under Darius, admitting, however, that in these two countries, when they emerge into the light of history, the theocracy had already been much broken down by military usurpation. By what evidence he could have proved that it ever existed, we confess ourselves unable to divine. The only other imperfection worth noticing here, which we find in M. Comte's view of history, is that he has a very insufficient understanding of the peculiar phenomena of English development. Though he recognizes, and on the whole correctly estimates, its exceptional character in relation to the general European movement, his failure consists chiefly in want of appreciation of Protestantism, which, like almost all thinkers, even unbelievers, who have lived and thought exclusively in a Catholic atmosphere, he sees and knows only on its negative side, regarding the Reformation as a mere destructive movement, stopped short in too early a stage. He does not seem to be aware that Protestantism has any positive influences, other than the general ones of Christianity, and misses one of the most important facts connected with it, its remarkable efficacy, as contrasted with Catholicism, in cultivating the intelligence and conscience of the individual believer. Protestantism when not merely professed but actually taken into the mind, makes a demand on the intelligence. The mind is expected to be active, not passive, in the reception of it. The feeling of a direct responsibility of the individual immediately to God is almost wholly a creation of Protestantism. Even when Protestants were nearly as persecuting as Catholics, quite as much so they never were, even when they held as firmly as Catholics that salvation depended on having the true belief, they still maintained that the belief was not to be accepted from a priest, but to be sought and found by the believer, 
at his eternal peril if he failed, and that no one could answer to God for him, but that he had to answer for himself. The avoidance of fatal error thus became, in a great measure, a question of culture, and there was the strongest inducement to every believer, however humble, to seek culture and to profit by it. In those Protestant countries, accordingly, whose churches were not, as the Church of England always was, principally political institutions, in Scotland, for instance, and the New England states, an amount of education was carried down to the poorest of the people, of which there is no other example. Every peasant expounded the Bible to his family, many to their neighbors, and had a mind practiced in meditation and discussion on all the points of his religious creed. The food may not have been the most nourishing, but we cannot be blind to the sharpening and strengthening exercise which such great topics gave to the understanding. The discipline in abstraction and reasoning which such mental occupation brought down to the humblest layman, and one of the consequences of which was the privilege long enjoyed by Scotland of supplying the greater part of Europe with professors for its universities, and educated and skilled workmen for its practical arts. End of part 1F Recording by Bill Borst